Welcome to the journey of an aesthete, a comprehensive examination of all things aesthetic, the arts, the humanities, and what it means to be human. Hello, is Elizabeth Anderson there? Yes, speaking. Elizabeth Anderson, welcome to our podcast, Journey of an Aesthete. Yeah, I'm very pleased to talk with you. I'm excited too. I mean, I usually do a little introduction if you don't mind, so I'm going to do that now and uh, introduce you. I, I'm uh, from time to time on our show, we have you know serious, um, you know, philosophers and 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 thinkers and intellectuals. So we had um, George K. Teb um, on our show uh, last year, uh-huh. and that was really enjoyable because I get to sort of nerd out on certain certain topics that normally you know, don't always get to talk about with all of our guests, but you're, 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 uh, such an important thinker. I, I, I don't think I could overestimate, uh, your, your importance. I mean, you've done, you've done research on, on ethics and, and politics and political philosophy and the issues of justice and democracy and government and issues of integration and race. You've written about so many topics. I hope we can get to at least some of those on the show. I don't. I don't think Absolutely, we. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think we can exhaust all of them. Is what I mean because you, you've been so prolific. Um. And so, welcome to our show. And um. Usually, we do a sort of a linear chronology, which is mm-hmm. a, a fancy way of saying personal biography. Um. In your case, you have roots in John Rawls, the great John Rawls. So, of course, I have to ask about Rawls. But if you want to talk about anything earlier than that, or how you came to uh, philosophy or science, philosophy of science, or any of it. Start wherever you want to, and and uh, begin. Start us sure, off. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'll start actually earlier because um, in high school, my father actually inspired me with the study of philosophy. Okay. So he was an aeronautical engineer. Um, Working in the, you know, at the heyday of the space program. Wow. But he, you know, having had technical training, you know, as an engineer, he kind of missed out on the liberal arts. But Mm -hmm. I was always a bookworm. Mm -hmm. And so in high school, he sat me down and we read some of Plato's Republic and John Stuart Mill together. Oh, wow. And those are some of my fondest memories. <laughs> they bad. were really inspiring. Um, it was just really exciting to read those texts. Yeah. And he was also, I grew up in a pretty hardcore libertarian household um, under my father's influence. So, mm. you know, he had books like, you know, um, Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman and I, I bet he had, by Friedrich Hayek. Uh, Road to Serfdom, uh, I'm guessing, right? Road to Serfdom. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And the Constitution of Liberty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I poked around in those texts and got interested in economics. Mm-hmm. And when I went to Swarthmore College as an undergraduate, I was originally interested in majoring in economics and was taking courses in economics. Mm-hmm. But I also had some problems with the conceptual apparatus of economics. Mm-hmm. I thought that the concept of preference was being used too loosely 
on the assumption that if you choose something, that must mean because you want it, and that must mean that you think that it's in your self-interest. And I was thinking, well, a lot of reasons why people choose stuff isn't because it's in their self-interest, but maybe, mm-hmm. you know, they're just conforming to certain social norms or mm-hmm. expectations of other people. Yeah, And it's precisely that kind of inclination to draw conceptual distinctions that kind of leads you to philosophy. Um, and and so, um, that was one of the motives I had for, for moving into philosophy, but still with a very deep engagement with the social sciences. And that was something that I continued in my undergraduate education, studying economics and, um, social theory along with philosophy. And another really important influence that I had as an undergraduate was studying the history and philosophy of science Mm. um, with a wonderful philosopher, Hugh Lacey, who taught this seminar where we combined the history and the philosophy of science. And this was just completely eye-opening and incredibly exciting because what we were learning was that the way philosophers of science were looking at science was through philosophical problems as they arose in the actual practice of science. Uh And I found this to be an incredibly exciting idea. And I thought, well, you know, maybe we should think of doing moral and political philosophy from that perspective rather than thinking that, oh, you can just do conceptual analysis or completely Uh abstract article uh, arguments of a universal nature that apply regardless of whatever practical problems are in front of you. Mm-hmm. Why don't we think of doing moral and political philosophy the same way, starting from the problems yeah. that people actually experience in their lives. Mm-hmm. And that is really the essence of a pragmatist approach and also a feminist approach, frankly, to yes. philosophy is that you start theorizing from the actual problems that mm. people experience in their lives mm. and think about how that could be, those problems could be articulated and, and worked out in practice mm-hmm. rather than thinking, oh, I can just sort of think a priori mm. without any prior assumptions yeah. and come up with universal principles and apply them, <laughs> you know, afterwards. Yeah. Do you, do you mind holding that that thought? Because I, I got bitten by the bug, you know, I guess when I read John Dewey a long time ago. Yeah. Well, John De- for me, it was John Dewey and William James. And then Isaiah Berlin, of all people. Of course, that's a, that's a slightly different. But I sort of realized that pluralism was, was more true than the alternatives. I, it, it occurred to me than monistic yeah. theories. And, and I, I think you came to that. It's interesting. For me, I felt like there was a one-size-fits-all quality to these these commandments from above, too abstract. Uh-huh. And I always felt that there was a, not to put too fine a point on it, that there was a almost a totalitarian temptation that can come out of that way of thinking from so abstractly and top-down. Um, well, you know, that was exactly what Bernard Williams thought. I love Bernard Williams. You know, in yeah. his... In his uh, famous essay 
morality, the peculiar institution, institution right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great right? essay. All, right, in comparison with slavery, right? Yeah, all does. of these demands that are being placed on us a priori and mm-hmm. universally, he, he, he really objected to that, although I actually disagree with Williams. I do think that the concept of moral obligation is absolutely fundamental and central to the moral life, mm-hmm. although I would agree with him that this urge to seek a universal principle that, that applies mm-hmm. absolutely everywhere in all contexts can lead in a kind of totalitarian direction, and I don't really want to go there. Right. Well, I'm, I'm interested in that question because I, I think Bernard Williams has been misread by many people as an amoralist or someone who's indifferent to those considerations. I don't you wouldn't say that he was I don't think he was indifferent. I think he just um, or maybe, he, you know, maybe talk a little bit about that worded in terms of Williams. Uh, was he was he misread or was he part and partly? Well, I think he was definitely a moralist in the sense that he, he admired, say, ancient Greek thought about the good life. Mm-hmm. But I think he was pretty um, skeptical of the idea of duties and obligations, the mm-hmm. moral right and wrong, as central yeah. to the ethical life. And I actually think they are very, very central They're very to the central, ethical life. sure, of course. Um, yeah, so that's a point at which I, I disagree with him. I don't think we can do ethics solely with the concept of the good life. Right. So so the, I guess the pragmatist conception is sort of revolutionary, right? Because it starts from where people live, if I understand understand yes. what you're saying. But I guess my I'm a little bit confused only because I'm, I'm trying to locate where John Rawls fits in because he's such – John Rawls is such a major figure and I – I'm sure he influenced you to some degree, as much as um, oh, absolutely, much as Dewey. So yeah, talk. So I went you know, on to, to grad school, yeah, to, precisely to study with Rawls. Oh wow! Um, and uh, that was at the advice of another wonderful um, professor I had at Swarthmore, Hans Oberdeek, who told uh-huh. me you got to study with Rawls. Wow! What year? What year was that? <laughs> and so I did, um, and so Rawls actually did have important very, very important pragmatist elements in his philosophy. Mm-hmm. So he did limit the scope of his theory of justice to, mm-hmm. you know, our current, you know, societies, demo, you know, Democrat democratic societies with mm-hmm. an advanced, you know, economic structure. Mm-hmm. He was very hesitant to theorize beyond the scope of, of such societies. And it, it, it's not that he didn't think that obviously there are, there is justice. Mm-hmm. There are demands of justice in sure. other societies, but he was hesitant to say what they would be because that wasn't the context that, that, you know, if you really are a pragmatist, then, then you're reluctant to draw generalizations mm-hmm. beyond the scope of experience that you're yes. familiar with. Yeah, I like that, though. I mean, I think if you start from your own experience, that could be a guide to things in the future that you have not yet experienced, right? But but oh, you, want, but, sure. but you mean, want to be cautious about it, I guess. Is, in other words, you yeah. want to start from ex- – in other words, you don't want to um, – I guess I would say is that people too often disparage their own experience. Um, yes, I – yes. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. And 
here's an important point, though, is that many people see pragmatism as a kind of moral relativism, like yeah. whatever any society thinks is right is right. Nope. But in fact, it's very different because within a pragmatist perspective, there's a fundamental recognition that every society is riven with contradictions and conflicts. Like yep. no society has has solved all of the problems nope. so that it faces. Nope. And so there's always internal critique. Mm-hmm. There's always resources that we need to take advantage of in order to come to terms with the unresolved problems that any given society faces. And that creates a kind of in, inherent dynamism yes. in, in any given social formation. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm often, there is this, I'm glad you bring that up because pragmatism is not relativism at all. And it's, I'm glad that you mentioned that not to confuse, confuse the two. Um, but what it does respect, though, yeah. is that different societies have different experiences and have faced different problems, mm-hmm. and that can lead people to come to different sort of temporary settlements. Right. <laughs> um, and we're not really in a position to just say, well, because they don't agree with us, they must be wrong. Right. We have to appreciate where they're coming from and why they have arrived at certain way stations, you might say, yeah. without any clear notion of any like firm or unique destination. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I saw a video of you talking about the need for dialogue about talking. And I, mm-hmm. I was struck by how some of the people representing, I guess, the far left were very hard on you and very hard. I think one of them was very suspicious of Dewey and I think said, well, it's all about power and why should we talk to these people? They're the enemy. And You, you know, but this is exactly what this – if you think that way, then democracy's over. Interesting. And let's keep in mind that that's the way a lot of the panicky right thinks about the oh, left. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. And it's precisely that the sense that that are that there are that our fellow citizens pose an existential threat to us mm-hmm. that leads people away from democratic practice and towards various forms of authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. It's that fear that if we don't put a stop to the other side now, all will be lost. Yeah. And that's what that's what it's just highly destructive in democratic politics. And in in those yeah. in the lecture that I, that you heard, or it might have been a series because I've given this in various venues. Yeah. Uh, this talk. What I what we what I stress is we got to be calm and yeah. ramp down the hysteria in, in order to get constructive yeah. democratic politics working sure i mean i was i was struck by i think um again i think that's a misuse of ideas i think in their case they were misusing foucault michelle foucault yeah. who is actually a very deep and interesting thinker but i think some misuse him for their own purposes either misuse him to say let's have no dialogue or let's shut down discussion or you know it's it's um that's a very you're right that's you can't have democracy if you if you do if you entertain that i didn't want to get too far away from rawls what was rawls like as a teacher as a 
man or is a he strikes me as a really unusual person, very special person. Do you have any thoughts about him? You know, it's really interesting. I'll tell you a, two, a couple of stories about him. Um, naturally, of course, his graduate seminars were very, very full, not just with his graduate students, but visiting scholars would also be in the room. Yeah. And I remember one time, uh, in one of his seminars that I was attending, I showed up really early <laughs> and there was just one other person That's beautiful. Um, in the room at the time who was a visiting scholar, I think maybe from Germany. I don't recall exactly who it was, mm -hmm. but he looked, he looked at me and he said with puzzlement in this seminar, everyone is very polite and civil to each other. With surprise. He said that with surprise. Huh. <laughs> wow. And, of course, that was the tone that Rawls always set. Real dialogue. Yeah. Real conversation. This isn't about debate scoring points against nope. each other nope. or who can top who. It was about serious thinking and yeah. trying to work through problems together thinking mm -hmm. together it's a very democratic and pragmatic spirit absolutely to the tone that he set and that was something that i really really respected and and, and loved mm -hmm. about rawls's seminars and mm -hmm. indeed he was he was the most modest of any of any highly accomplished philosopher yep. i have ever met mm -hmm. so when when grad students would criticize him, mm. he never once ever said, oh, you misread me. Right. He would always say, I must not have expressed myself mm -hmm. very clearly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, and then he would explain what he was up to. It, yeah. He was always like that, incredibly modest, yeah. never arrogant. No. Well, that's why I asked about him as a man. He seemed really um, had a lot of integrity. He seemed to me, and he, you know, and I—that's the sense I get from listening to his lectures, and you know, and so I, I'm right about that, right? He was very, he was, um, he had he had good character. Yeah. yeah, I guess you would say. I I I think that's right, and um, yeah, he really manifested that in in his teaching. The other thing is, he gave his graduate students. Real, real freedom in how to pursue their research and what topics to tackle, even though, of course, you know, many, many people chose to write on Rawlsian themes. Yes. Many of his students did. He gave everyone complete freedom, intellectual freedom to choose what they want. So my dissertation wasn't really engaging Rawls's mm -hmm. um, work at all. You know, even though, of course, I've been really importantly influenced by Rawls. Yeah. But he said, fine, go right ahead. Do, you know? <laughs> well, was that. Did, I have to ask, did your early work on value and the extrinsic and the intrinsic come out of that? That Was that, is that later or was that. That was my dissertation. That I was mean, your so dissertation. I'll I did be radically rewrite my dissertation um, to turn it into a book when I was an uh, assistant professor. At University of Michigan. I see. But so, yeah, it was coming out of my dissertation. 
the value pluralism. Do you mind discussing that for the audience a little bit? Because I think it's important, number one. And number two, I think, again, to clear up misunderstandings and also to clarify some definitions, because it's important of what, of what you mean by extrinsic, intrinsic. Um, yes, right, because I don't use them in the same way that, that, that many others do. Right. So on my, on, on the view, I was very interested, and I still am, in advancing the idea of value pluralism. Absolutely. There's different kinds of values. Absolutely. It's not all on the same scale. It's not all one same mm -hmm. thing. I, I'm, it's a very anti-reductionist view of values. And one way to begin motivating that is by starting with the thought that to be good is to be the proper object of a favorable attitude. Mm -hmm. But there are many favorable attitudes. Mm -hmm. So there's a difference between love and respect and yeah. admiration. Yeah, there is. Those are three different things. And we have many other mm -hmm. positive attitudes, too, like awe. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, you might associate the sublime Absolutely. with the awesome. Today we say it's awesome. But <laughs> back in the 18th century, people called it sublime. <laughs> yes. At any rate, um, once we understand that even our whole emotional apparatus is highly differentiated, mm -hmm. um, that, that gives us a starting point for thinking about um, how value is yeah. also is, is plural. It's plural, yeah. Yeah. And then the other really important point that I start my book, Value in Ethics and Economics, with is by pushing against the idea that the fundamental good thing is a state of affairs that we want or desire or like mm -hmm. some fact in the world. <laughs> yeah. And what I argue is no, the fundamental value, valuable things are people, mm. not propositions, not yeah. state of affairs or animals. Animals are, we, you know, absolutely. People are the proper objects of love and respect. That's not a state of affairs. That's nope. like a whole person, and similarly, we can adore our pets, absolutely, um, and, and 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 have all kinds of affection and attachment to them. So animals are also valuable. We mm -hmm. can admire, you know, glorious specimens of practically any species mm -hmm. of animal. Um, so there, all of these living things, you know, have their own value because mm -hmm. they are intrinsic value. That's right. Because they're the proper object of these favorable attitudes and not because they're useful. <laughs> I mean, we might also, you know, find people and animals and plants and so forth useful, but they have a value independent of that. That's right. Um, and, and that that's what I'm trying to, it's one of the themes that, yeah. that I'm getting at. And then I also talk about modes of valuing. Mm-hmm. So valuing isn't just a matter of an immediate emotional response, uh, but also whole patterns of conduct mm -hmm. through which we <clears throat> express or manifest our favorable attitudes towards good things. Mm -hmm. And that can be culturally inflected in mm -hmm. various ways. 
you know, we have, for instance, norms of etiquette, which are fairly elaborate and, yeah. you know, culturally relative modes of expressing our respect mm-hmm. for other people. Mm-hmm. And that leaves, you know, that makes space open for cultural differentiation mm-hmm. and elaboration yes. over time. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, the, the the amount of societies is very complex, wouldn't you agree? And, the, and that has to be accounted for in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, what what do you what do you attribute the popularity of not so good ideas like say consequentialism or this kind of abstraction? Why do you think that is so appealing? I mean, I think I'm thinking of the celebrity of Peter Singer. Um, yeah. How, what do you attribute that to? I, I, it always puzzles me because I sort of think, well, is it is it the idea of starting from scratch or from above or trying to create the perfect society or trying to solve problems of injustice or is it is that what it is? It's a well, um, you know, I actually, believe it or not, my most recent research has located the origins of utilitarianism mm-hmm. in Calvinism. Oh, that's true. You have been studying that. Yeah, it's history of Christianity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so basically I'm writing, I, I, I just submitted a manuscript on the history of the work ethic, of the Protestant work ethic yes. to Cambridge University Press. I'm going to still have a lot of feedback and revision yep. to do, but the the first draft is written. And in that work, I go back to the Puritans mm-hmm. who invented the work ethic and uh, read a bunch of texts that Max Weber in his classic, The Protestant Ethic and the yes. Spirit of Capitalism, cited yes. as the origins of the work ethic. And... What I discovered there was that the Puritans, they basically all have a Calvinist theology. That's interesting, yeah. And they, there are certain characteristic aspects of the Puritan temperament which really have been carried forward in utilitarianism. Yeah, that's And one true. of them is like <clears throat> a kind of impatience with anything that doesn't have practical results. Mm. So within the Puritan ethic, this resulted in a transformation, even the whole idea of work. Mm -hmm. So in Catholicism, works works were important, but in Catholicism, works are things like participating in the sacraments. Interesting. Prayer. Doing the rosary, they're ritualistic, they are, yeah. and the Puritans just had complete contempt for that. They thought the only works that mattered was work—that is, things that had practical consequences for other human beings that were carrying mm. out God's will for yeah. human beings on earth, which is to help our fellow human beings to promote their welfare. So here you have this kind of, and we see this also. With Puritan churches, they're yeah. very stripped down. Yeah, they have they no... don't want all of this finery. They're yeah. not interested in aesthetics. What's the bottom line? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, my art they were also yeah. My podcast is called Journey of an Aesthete after all. So this is this is probably a very important important topic because I'm often, you know, I don't have a lot of patience for some of the austerity of those doctrines. And certainly they don't Oh. They they yes, certainly have no, they don't they don't like costume. They don't like they don't understand the importance of 
ornamentation and it, it seems very it's very bereft but again i want to beat up with it they got because as you point out they got some things right they weren't all wrong but but go ahead I, i've talked too much go yeah so this is incredibly interesting because puritans were running a kind of class war against um the high church that's right. anglicans who were basically allied with the aristocratic class the ruling class yeah the ruling yeah, class. That's the, but that's the good class, part. They're very materialistic. They're, you know, sure. and they want to show off their sure. finery. Sure. And the Puritans just hated that. Yeah. It's vanity. Yeah. And, and so that's, and they also thought that Catholics were, with all of the, you know, there was a lot of smoke and mirrors, <laughs> mumbo jumbo, <laughs> mystification. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they they really thought that that was befuddling people and bewitching them in in, in certain ways. Mm -hmm. um, and so the stripping down was just, I think, part of a a war against mystifications that mm -hmm. they thought drew people away from real virtue. Yeah. But so I'm with you. I mean, I, I do well, think that yeah. for even though I'm not in any respect Catholic, the great, you know, cathedrals of Europe are oh, some of the yeah. most magnificent, gorgeous, yeah. beautiful works of art ever created. Is, is it is it a case of, of a particular denomination carrying your ideas too far? Is this something that you see in, in history? Sort of you have a good idea, but then you the bane into the ground or is that, would you, is that how you see that as like, um, uh, and that's where we get conservative work ethic as opposed to a liberate, liberatory or progressive work ethic. Am I getting too far, far ahead, but I, um, Oh yeah. So I do think that, you know, the Puritans are reacting against real corruptions in the Catholic church. Sure. Um, and even even among the high Anglicans too. So you can see, but I do think that's right that there's also kind of a core of fanaticism, and we see this that that there's something there's certain people who always want to drive a principle to its logical conclusion mm -hmm. <laughs> beyond all reason. Yeah, <laughs> it does seem to be a kind of flaw that that some people are inclined yeah. to, um, and a kind of rigorism. Yeah, that can shut out other domains of experience. And so you see, you see that as something that's an eternal problem, or is it a problem? Historic? Do you historicize that problem, or do you think is it something in human nature, so-called human nature, or is it, or is it something that waxes that, and wanes? Or I think that in any society, there is a range of what you might call personalities. Mm -hmm. And you can you can see different people, and I'm not going to use personality in any kind of sense that like is measured in psychological theory. I'm not thinking <laughs> yeah. about it in that terms, but yeah, rather yeah. that in any society you can see a kind of a, a variety of dimensions of kind of orientation mm -hmm. where some people, for instance. Um, just love the finery mm -hmm. and the aesthetics, um, and others just are like really, really. They want to only they only care about the bottom line. Yeah, they only like facts over and... 
frivolity, yeah, you right, know. Right. <laughs> um, and, and there are many other dimensions mm-hmm. of variation like that. So in any given society, you'll have some people who are just people of rectitude. They think yeah. there's a right and a wrong, and it's mm-hmm. black and white. Yeah. And other people are looser and more open to a, a, a more kind of flexible way of dealing with with problems rather than rigid roles. And you you could just see that that there's just these differences that yeah. maybe just come out of different people's temperaments. It they um, do. I do think they. So is really the imperative of being a democracy, making sure that. Everybody has a voice. Is is it kind of um, solving that problem of these temperaments, and so that one one voice doesn't get too loud or doesn't dominate too much? Is that would that be a, a yeah? Thing? I think so. So here's another way to put the point um, within philosophy of science. Uh, there's there's a very interesting tradition, which which suggests that the the positive features of science are not embodied in any single scientist, but rather arise from the community of scientists who Mm -hmm. are working together to hold each other to certain standards of research and so forth. And within that way, that more communal way of thinking about how science operates, it's very important that you do have a range of cognitive temperaments. So you'll have some scientists who are really risk-taking and they go out on a limb and they take some some hypothesis that seems to have a low probability of success, but they really push it because every so often some of those just win big, you know, like Mm -hmm. the million-dollar lottery, right? So you want some cognitive risk-takers, but you also want some more cautious, skeptical people who think, "Eh, I don't really think that's going to fly, and then they, they will read the studies of the wild hypothesis and point out the flaws and demand yeah. additional experiments and so forth. But you need both kinds. You need both the adventurous people who go out on a limb and really explore new ideas that, that could really pay off big, but you also need the skeptical people so that we're not just gullible and swallowing the next bit of hype that right. sounds really cool. Well, that, and you can think mm-hmm. of the same way in democracy that, that we need a variety of temperaments, right? Some yeah. people pushing the envelope and others holding back a bit, um, more cautious about the risks. And democracy can be a way of, of, of kind of working out for society a, a kind of balance of those different um, temperaments, temperaments yeah. both to accommodate different people's comfort levels Um but also just to make sure that we're neither stagnant nor taking crazy risks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that brings you right up to date with your most recent work, right? Because you are dealing with oppressiveness at work and exploitation in the workplace, right? Most, oh, most, yeah. most I mean, directly. We've really gone overboard. <laughs> oh, it's awful. But, it's, yeah. it's, it, but your, your viewpoint is unique because you don't come at this from a doctrinaire Marxist perspective. Um, but neither do you come at your research from from a from a you know capitalist or free market purely perspective. Uh, talk about where your where you locate yourself in that, or what you've discovered in in your research. Yeah. And, um, that interests so me. So this is really 
coming out of my pragmatism Mm -hmm. is that we, you know, there are lessons to be learned from history. And I think what we're learning is the kind of hardcore neoliberal doctrine that we've been living with has some really, really bad consequences. Um, But of course it doesn't mean that, you know, central comprehensive centralized planning of the economy is such a hot idea either because that was also tried yeah yeah um and i think in in the aftermath of the collapse of the soviet union and east european communism Mm -hmm. almost all socialists came around to the thought which i share Mm -hmm. that in an advanced economy you can't do without the extensive use of markets no Markets are just really important. You you can't eliminate them. And, and also that there's an important role for private property. Now, of course, how that's configured is an entirely separate issue. And so mm-hmm. on my view, the, the kind of big theory arguments between classical socialism and capitalism are entirely driven at a level of abstraction and generality that's not at all useful yep um, absolutely and yeah what i what i'm seeking is a much more fine-grained discussion of institutional design that mm-hmm. really gets down to some you know more just details about how you're going to spell out these different institutions yeah uh, what, get, get more. Do you talk a little bit more, if you don't mind, about some of those details? Because it fascinates me. Because it seems to me, when I look at the political landscape, I see abstract theorists duking it out and forming like cults around themselves and and, and fighting, and it just seems really, it's very dismaying, I must say. And I feel like, um, what's the solution to that? Talk about that, where we can get into real practical solutions. Um, yeah. So I do think that um, we have to actually go back to the classical tradition of political economy. Okay. If you read the, you know, and this is really one of the lessons that I want people to draw from my book on the work ethic, mm-hmm. um, which is that the classical economists, the classical political economists, Smith, mm-hmm. John Stuart Mill, people like that. Um, both had very strong normative conceptions and mm-hmm. very rich normative ideas about what a good just system of organization would look like. But they're also very, very attuned to particulars of institutions, of human psychology, of the interaction of psychology and institutions. That is how different institutions can mm-hmm. help us cultivate um, better emotions and attitudes towards people and what kinds of institutions make us hostile mm-hmm. and distrustful of each other. Um, mm. And in fact, I think one of the most important normative lessons of the classical economists is that they understood that by far the most important product of an economic system is human beings themselves. Wow. The way we organize production and distribution profoundly affects our attitudes, emotions, feelings towards each other, Mm -hmm. our 
you know, whether we trust or distrust people, but also our skills, our mm. dispositions. Um, and in fact, one of the central themes of classical political economy is this deep concern shared by Smith, Marx, Mill, and many others. Right. That here we have a very sophisticated division of labor emerging in the Industrial Revolution, which gives us spectacularly advanced productive powers. Mm-hmm. So as a society, we're vastly richer, but as individuals, the workers are stunted, stultified, and bored, de-skilled, mm-hmm. and reduced to repeating the same mechanical motion over and over. millions yeah. of times over yeah. the course of their working lives. And yeah. that's horrifying. It is, yeah. Imagine if you're just reduced to some mechanical motion endlessly repeated for your entire life. It's mm-hmm. boring. It drives people into distraction. Mm-hmm. It, it causes you know, they didn't have the term, but repetitive stress injury. It's bad for people's health. They understood that Um, for their minds, for their spirits. It just grinds people down. Mm -hmm. And what they were seeking, all of them, or what they wanted was a society in which would both be prosperous, but also enhance and enrich the life and experience and the skills and abilities of each individual member of society. Mm. But that's about the impact on us as human beings and who we are. And also they sought a society in which the institutional arrangements would support mutual trust and sympathy with each other. Mm -hmm. That's a matter of the quality of our human relationships. None of them thought that the point of economics was just to accumulate a mountain of stuff or wealth. <laughs> that right. was actually a secondary consideration. I mean, important, of course, at the time, given that, given how, how widespread poverty was. Yeah. But that was by no means like the fundamental thing that, that people should be after. None of them thought that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I know that you've rehabilitated John Locke and saved him from McPherson, right? Is that, would that be a way of putting it? Or, or, or Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, Locke is, Locke is a, I think Locke is not at all a libertarian. Nope. He is a proponent of the work ethic and a particularly progressive work ethic yeah. for the most part. That is a pro-worker work ethic. Right, And right. that's what I argue. But he's not consistent. In, and in fact, the only totally consistent person in in the book is adam smith yeah um yeah the others all are constantly slipping or or occasionally slipping into a pretty reactionary version of the work ethic but smith was completely consistent throughout he's 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 a wonderful interesting humane philosopher and Mm. economist yep he didn't think as far ahead in terms of institutional design as some of his successors, um, yeah. but but the humanity is all there. Everybody needs an anchor in life. You, me, just everybody. Anchor made this whole show possible. I'm immensely grateful to them. You too can use Anchor to make your own shows and create your own vision. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. So do you see this sort of the far left or Marxist revolution is in in its own way a deviation from some originally good ideas or the classical 
a, def a deformation of the classical tradition, and that's what set Soviet Union and all these very bad governments on their course? Or do you, which, how do you read that history? Interpretation? Yeah, so I think that Marx is subject to different interpretations. <laughs> and a lot of it is because Marx and Engels together really didn't spell out the institutional arrangements of communist society, right? No. Oh, we'll leave that to the revolutionaries, right? Yeah. And I think that was a serious mistake. Um, and so that left open possible articulations Abuses. of Marx's theory, yeah. both in a totalitarian direction, but also in a very social democratic direction. And both of those articulations were actually taken by mm -hmm. different historical actors sure. growing out of the Marxist tradition. So do you, do you think the fact that Marx was purely diagnostic or sort of I'm going to critique or understand capitalism is both his virtue and his vice, the fact that he left he left things up to unpredictability of the future or the fact he well, – how I, do you – Well, I guess yeah. what I think is that um, he, there are a couple of things. One is he just thought that it would be easy to devise comprehensive alternatives to the market. And he didn't really think through in any serious way yeah. what a huge challenge it is oh, yeah. to replace the market with like, Something. oh, like, we'll just get people together. They'll all be reasonable and they'll, they'll agree yeah. to exchange this for that. Well, no, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think he was kind of delusional about that. And yeah. he was also, by the way, mistaken about he thought that markets made people selfish mm. and and kind of rapacious towards each other and i think actually empirically that turns out to be false yeah so there is um some really wonderful work by um some economists coming out of the radical political economy tradition mm -hmm. people like sam balls and herb gintis yep who have argued that empirically Experiencing commercial society actually is good for building on trust. Mm -hmm. um, so if you look at, say, different people from different societies different with different um, extent of the market, mm -hmm. the people in more extensive market societies are more likely to trust uh, people in public goods games. Interesting. That's um, really interesting. Hmm. Whereas if if the scope of the market is much smaller, they're only going to trust their tiny little circle, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, but markets get you used to the idea that, well, you know, like I could just order this on Amazon from, you know, some some vendor in a distant country and it'll come to me <laughs> and <Yeah>. it will, <laughs> right? Oh, so so, you're, so it what actually you, expands the scope of trust. So what you're saying is you – so you make a distinction which Marxists fail to draw – between neoliberal capitalism in a certain historical moment and markets, those are different, right? Those are those are very different mechanisms. Well, yeah, and, I mean, yeah. look, there's a whole market socialist tradition, That's which I think got a huge boost from from the failure of the Soviet Union. And, and so, you know, in the 1990s, like almost all socialist thought becomes market socialist. You need markets. Yeah. And then the issue is, how do we organize production? Which is an entirely separate question. That's interesting. Um. And so in my book, Private Government, I point out that um, uh, the corporation or the firm, the productive enterprise, has really been grossly under-theorized mm -hmm. 
like we talk about market society, but really a major question left out when we talk about markets is, well, what is how are firms governed? Who governs them? Who calls the shots? And yeah. what is the constitution of the typical you know, firm? Uh, firm. Yeah. And my argument is, if you actually examine that constitution, it's a dictatorship. Oh, yeah. Well, that isn't so great. I mean, if we don't think dictatorships yeah. are so great, you know, in politics, you know, in, why would it be any better know, for states? In private, yeah. Why? Why should we be so happy with them yeah. for production? And I don't think we should be. Yeah, that's a chief source of, um, you know, the the oppression of workers. Absolutely. So I guess I guess that's why I, one of the things I like about your work, you're 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 basically your insight is a dictatorship is a dictatorship. If it looks like a duck, and then you know it's like dictatorship. Things that are undemocratic are just that they're 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 anti-democratic, right? Would that be a, a fair way to? Um, yeah, I do think say, that we need more democracy in the workplace. Now, it's not going to look like you know conventional representative democracies, but we have to think clearly about. Yeah. And do a lot of experimentation of what that would look like for productive firms. Yeah. Um, but the the key thing about democracy is that everybody's interests in a well configured democracy get heard. Yeah. Whereas you know under a dictatorship, if you <laughs> dissent, you get fired. Yeah. <laughs> right. That that's typically what happens. But, but that just means that the top dogs don't really have to listen. Mm. What needs to be done to change all these things? It does seem kind of you, one could be overwhelmed. Again, I'm an outsider. I'm not a uh, I'm certainly not an activist and I'm not someone who, you know, uh, how, how does it look to you? Or again, I was very dismayed by the way people seem to relish war and, and as a way to solve things or, or, or just fighting. War does not solve things. I oh, mean, it's awful. Oh, yeah, yeah. Occasionally, what? we must resort to war if there's, yeah. like, aggression, you know, against right. us. But in a democracy, yeah. dem democratic procedures are a substitute for resorting to violence. Yeah, I mean, I and, guess I was using that word. I should be. I should clarify. When I said war, I did not mean physical violence. I meant people shouting matches rather than real dialogue, and that's what I liked about right, your. But that's also anti-democratic, right? Like the idea that you just shout your opponent down, yeah, or or bully or shame yeah. them into retreating from discussion. You know yeah. the the discussion. It's awful, no, that's appalling. Yeah. That's that's deeply. Anti-democratic. Why is that so attractive to so many people? Aren't aren't you worried? It seems like a kind of a sickness that society's in that we people one think that's a good thing, and I just I don't know. I just it just it disturbs me. Yeah. So we see this kind of toxicity on both the left and the right. Yeah. Um, you know, the right is always complaining about cancel culture. Huh. Um. But, you know, the right also engages in a lot of cancel culture. Both sure. sides are doing it. And that's, I'm, not, I'm not claiming that they're all exactly equal. Right. But what I am saying is everybody has to look at their own behavior carefully. Right. And, and consider whether their contribution to the discussion is constructive or destructive of 
of the possibility of living at peace with one another. Yeah. And and coming to terms with the problems that we face together in a way that accommodates everyone's interests. Or mm-hmm. if you just insist, I'm going to have my way and that's it, and I'm just going to steamroll over the opposition. Like mm-hmm. Those are two very different ideas. I guess that's a key word for you is everyone, isn't it? Or everybody, right? It's important to you, right? That, that, uh, yeah. Now, of course, you know, that raises the deep question of global justice. Yes, it does. Because the democratic formations that we've, you know, democracy can be scaled, but but we've never, we have never really figured out how to scale it to the whole world and whether that's even feasible. Mm. We can scale it up to state level. Yeah. But even even when you get to multi-state formations like the European Union, yeah, the democratic content of the EU is pretty weak. Yeah, um, there are too many layers removed from, uh, you know, decision making is too many layers removed from mm-hmm. the the actual level of experience and you know what people are confronting in their lives. Mm-hmm. It's very, very difficult to figure out how to scale these things, but um, and and so that I think I'm not I'm not precluding the possibility of scaling, but I, I think that requires massive experimentation. We've barely even begun, yeah, trying to figure out what that might look like. But we do face, you know, with climate change, that's yeah, a global that's problem. A global problem. Got, takes all every hand on deck, and yeah. we really, boy, do we have to coordinate really fast across. International borders, and I'm not sure whether we'll make it. Wow. So what? So does that mean? So is that part of your critique of consequentialism? Is that consequentialism starts from a weird place, presuming that we can just sort of scale things up? Is that kind of? Is that a fair question? Or well, I think um, I, I think there the problem with consequentialism is because it's so results focused. Yeah. It doesn't consider in the way I think is necessary how we are regarding people in our relentless drive for certain consequences, but that oh. always has to be part of the equation. Absolutely. And that means that process matters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um and and it in respect in human rights matter. Yeah. Deeply and constrain what we can permissibly do to achieve certain outcomes that mm-hmm. are also, you know, vital. Um, and consequentialism doesn't really have a great way to think about that. Yeah, I mean, but is that is that flaw in consequentialism connected with this this problem of trying to, you know, govern from a world is that one of the problems, or is there, is that those are separate issues? Is I guess is what I was wondering. Um, well, I do think that wait, once you take democracy really, really seriously, mm-hmm. you already acknowledge limits to a purely consequentialist view. Okay. Because and, and this is you know it's coming straight out of doing it that does, means yeah. and ends are not strictly separated. Nope. That it's not just achieving some end results, but the means you take have values of their own, mm-hmm. especially since so many of those means are 
you know, affected through human agency. So we're talking about how we treat other human beings, their fellow human beings. They're not just instruments in our hands. Right. So every everything is relational, is relationship, I guess is what... Exactly. Yes. I deeply believe that. Yes. <laughs> right. And so when we think ethically and when we think in terms of political economy, we mm. always have to think about how institutions are setting up our relationships to one another. How do you, uh, you know, I, I guess so. even this has been a great discussion. I've really enjoyed uh, enjoyed it immensely, and, and and I wish it could go on forever, but it can, of course. So, what um, what do you see going forward in terms of the future of some of these questions, or what comes to your mind as we as we begin to conclude uh, this episode, or anything you want to talk about comes to your mind? Well, just when we think about. Let me just stress another aspect of my work, which we haven't touched on. Oh, and boy. It, okay. it is all about relationships, and in particular, relations of equality. Okay. So my my theory of egalitarianism is all about how we create a society of equals, a free society of equals. Right. Right, where we actually interact with one another on terms of equality. Yes. And in the history of political economy, equality has always been deeply tied both to relations of mutual respect and reciprocity and mm-hmm. also relations of sympathy with one another. Ah, yes. And if we look at the crisis of democracy today, they're deeply tied to the fact that when we view each other as enemies, mm. We both think that and behave like we don't respect these other people and mm-hmm. we have no sympathy for them. So mm-hmm. who cares, you know, what happens to them? And right. that is deeply anti-democratic. It's sure. deeply – and it's deeply inegalitarian. It leads people to a kind of authoritarian mindset. Well, mm-hmm. I, just, I just have to impose my will on these unreasonable, horrible people. Right, and both sides are thinking that way sometimes. It's yeah. tempted. Yeah, um, it, it's 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 really um, to me it's it's actually frightening. I know that. Um, how do we get out of this? I mean, I guess you you're trying to trying to find a course, and you're thinking to, but talk talk even further about that because that's that that interests me. Um, so yeah. I think that one place to start is there's a lot of panic about the other side and that's not to deny look there are some serious people who really want some kind of authoritarian regime yeah as as an end they do right so if you look at january 6th insurrection oh, yeah. well they just wanted totally their way mm-hmm. um but but in fact it's wrong to stereotype you know every member of a political party mm-hmm. in those terms in fact the vast majority of people who are affiliated with one party or the other in in the big democracies are not that ruthless and fanatical. <laughs> and in fact, we share a lot of common interests. Mm-hmm. And that means that we need to seek out common ground. Mm-hmm. And we do now have a kind of toxified um, spaces of discourse, particularly on social media, Mm-hmm. which are whipping up 
conspiracy theories whose whole point mm. is to represent the other side as too evil to trust and frightening and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, of course, destroys any prospect of talking mm. with each other in ways to find common ground. However, we can create spaces in which it's possible for citizens mm-hmm. to do that. Right. And in fact, if we look at one of the promising things that's happening in democracies around the world is mm-hmm. the rise of citizens' assemblies. Right. And what we find is if you get the trolls out of the room mm-hmm. and both politicians and media people who want to whip up distrust and discord, mm-hmm. if you get those people out of the room, ordinary citizens of different political affiliations and walks of life and different racial identities are perfectly capable and have shown this repeatedly of having a constructive conversation about the problems that we confront and coming up with pretty reasonable solutions. And this has been shown all over the world in the democracies that ordinary citizens, Mm -hmm. you know, who's, who, who don't have political careers in the sense of aspirations to office holding right. um, really want to like figure out solutions to problems sure. and not just whip up discord and, mm-hmm. and distrust, you know, to win political office so they could be somebody important. Mm-hmm. Well, you said something very interesting. You said that fear is the root, I guess, vice and that, you said hatred is derivative of fear psychologically. I think I quote, am I quoting you uh, accurately? That's actually coming straight out of another of my teachers from graduate school, Martha Nussbaum. Ah, Martha. She was at Harvard at you the time. You study with right? Nussbaum. And so her wonderful oh, book, wow. The Monarchy of Fear, is articulating yes. that thesis. Thank you. I appreciate now, you mentioning I do her. have an amendment yeah. to it because I don't think fear is the only driver. I do agree that fear is one of the drivers of an authoritarian anti-democratic politics, but I think mm-hmm. there's another driver that's okay. equally important. Okay. And that's the one that Rousseau identified. Interesting. And that is esteem competition, group oh. esteem competition. That is a kind of touchiness that what the other side is saying is just trying to put you down for who you are, for your social identity. And we see this erupting all over the place with all kinds of toxic discourse that around, that surrounds issues of racial identities Mm -hmm. uh, and religious identities, Mm -hmm. right? But various identities that divide us. Um, Right. And so, Once people start hearing what other people are saying as just an attempt to insult them Mm. or make them feel bad about themselves, (laughs) right? then we also can't get anything done because then what people do is then they rise to the defense of their identities because they don't want to be, they don't want to be shamed in in front of others. Mm. So that esteem competition in the sense that my group can succeed only by putting another group, group down, down. Yeah, is also a really important point, a source of toxic discourse in in society today. So for you, so envy. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, it's fear, but also, would you call this um, 
loss of dignity or, or so, a kind of a, of a perceived... Yeah, that's right. People are rising in defense of their dignity. Yeah. Now, I, 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 I hasten to add yeah. that in many cases, the interpretation of what the other side is saying is just an attempt to put them down is itself a grave moral error. Interesting. So we can see this in all of the toxicity around the pandemic response. Yeah, talk about that because so, we know, just wh- lived through this, yeah. this incredible year. And, so, you know, why, yeah. do, why do we see people getting upset when they're told on an airline to put on their mask? Or why do we see, you know, there are these videos of people who are even like aggressively tearing the masks off of other people or getting into arguments. It's insane. And and here is a case where I think President Trump during the pandemic modeled this kind of behavior for his supporters because he repeatedly interpreted virtually every public health measure dealing with scientifically based public health measure dealing with the pandemic mm-hmm. as an attempt to make him look bad. Yeah. Right. So he complained that why are we doing all of this testing? Because that increases the number of confirmed cases and that makes me look bad. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, yeah. why did he say, Oh, the pandemic is nothing. It's a little bitty virus, no worse than the flu because he wanted to minimize the, how bad things were so mm. that he wouldn't look like he was incompetent and in failing to deal with it. Um, or why did he insist that the governors praise him if he sent them personal protective equipment, right? Because it was all about his status and esteem before others. So they had to praise him, right? It's all about, it was all about how, you know, his appearance before others about esteem. And, you know, many of his followers learned from him. That that if, you know, liberals or whatever are wearing masks, that this is just, it's nothing more than a negative judgment. They're just parading their negative judgment of conservatives, right, about basically they're interpreting mask wearing not as a public health measure, but rather as the smugness of those liberals who are shaming us and trying to guilt us into wearing masks, which are useless and possibly even dangerous to health. Um, And no wonder they're tearing off other people's masks and coughing in their faces to show that they're not going to take it anymore because everything is interpreted as a chip on the shoulder, right? You're Mm. just trying to insult me, (laughs) right? And if you read the other side exclusively in those terms, then you can get pretty short-tempered and and toxic rising in defense uh, of your own identity. And and that's Mm -hmm. basically what we see endlessly repeated in YouTube YouTube videos over masks. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's really really tragic because we're talking about microorganisms that can hurt you. And there's nothing more. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing more. Yeah. Well, I get, hold, hold that thought. What I want to say about that is that if there's anything that's indiscriminate and, and anything, um, I mean, it has nothing to do with who you are or what kind of person you are. That's a, that doesn't doesn't discriminate or viruses and, and germs. I mean, it just seems to me very it's very tragic. I mean, that's I'm it sorry. It is yeah. awful, but yeah. let's keep in mind that you know, conservatives who are arguing over pandemic health measures, you know, 
they have their own points which have to be taken seriously. I do think that children yeah. have been pretty seriously disturbed by remote learning. Oh yeah. Little kids cannot learn online. I'm sorry. Yeah, like, they this can't. Just yeah, it's work. been a, it's been a nightmare. Yeah, for them. It's been yeah. a, it's been a nightmare for the parents too. Yep. And you might have come across this incredibly interesting article in the New York Times, in which they showed a photograph of children learning during the pandemic of 1918. Wow. And they decided to hold classes outdoors. And they showed these kids bundled up in the wintertime in New York City with desks and they're learning. And, you know, I always thought while it was happening, while the schools were being shut down, you know, here I am living in Ann Arbor. Yeah. And I really wondered why didn't the public school teachers consider the possibility of outdoor learning? Yeah. And even if it wasn't, you know, every weekday Mm -hmm. to have some classes where the kids could be running around and playing and exchanging ideas with each other. And it it wouldn't eliminate all transmission, but in fact, it wasn't long before people were realizing that, that transmission wasn't really all that high outdoors and that kids seemed to be less bad, little kids weren't as effective as as teens and adults. Um, I just think that we should have been more creative in thinking about yep. uh, the education of children. Mm. Um, and, you know, even if you don't go all the way to red state, red state strategies, which of course, you know, have their own problems. Um, if, if, if we had actually been working this out, democratically rather than arguing that the other side's evil and arrogant and smug, then maybe we could have come up with creative compromises that, 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 that gave due room for both Mm -hmm. the protection of health and the education of children. Wow. Well, that's, that brings us right up to the current moment. Where do you see going forward that? your own philosophical work, the truth that uh, it seems to me that freedom and equality can, can go together, right? There's not a necessary. Absolutely. So I wanted, I wanted, this is my work. Well, this is Isaiah Berlin's great error. I think as much as I love Berlin and I've written about him and and how he mentioned, this is what he gets wrong, right? He didn't see where he didn't see the, the harmony, potential harmony, right? Between equality and freedom. Um, do you want to talk a little bit before we conclude about that? Because that's a that's a perennial debate in philosophy. Well, yes. Yeah. And so remember, on my view, equality is fundamentally about how we relate to one another. Yes. And only secondarily, not unimportantly, but only derivatively, how much money each of us have in our pocket. Right, of course. Sure. I mean, of course, that distributive justice is super important, but I do think that it is subordinate to the question of how we relate to each other. Now, mm. if you have massive, massive inequalities of wealth, it's very difficult for people on opposite sides of that to relate to each other as equals. Because the rich person can pretty much dictate terms and really operates under no constraints. Right. You know, just look at how difficult it is to bring billionaires to any kind of legal account at all for illegal behavior. It's like very, very hard to do that. Occasionally 
you know, they can do it, but basically the it's, differential resources between a billionaire and even the Department of Justice are so huge yeah. that it almost never happens. Yeah. Um, so, but but if we think about how we relate to each other as equals, yes. there is actually a con- deep conceptual overlap between e- uh, equality and freedom. Absolutely. So think of it in negative terms. Mm-hmm. A fundamental way to be unfree is to be subject to the domination of another person. Yes. But domination is a relation of inequality. Absolutely. So so to be free, you have to be free of domination. And that requires that you stand in some fundamental relation of equality to mm-hmm. others so they can't just order you around. Mm-hmm. Well, that's you a know, that's in an a accountable fashion. Well, that's a case where one follows from the other. So there's a there's a symbiotic, there's a natural, there's a natural harmony between the two, right? Because I mean, if you and I are both talking on this podcast, we're free we're free beings talking to each other, right? And so yeah. that's a that's a so the possibility so the very the very I, I guess how I would put it is that the very possibility of conversation opens up many many possibilities, right? dialogue itself yes yes and that was a really deep theme of dewey's yes so my favorite essay of dewey's is an op-ed that he wrote in 1939 i think wow called creative democracy the task before us yes i've read and i want to stress the creative part yep when we talk to each other as equals Mm -hmm. share our experiences and and search for common interests. Mm-hmm. Those are all creative acts. Yes, they are. Because each of us comes to re-articulate our sense of ourselves, mm. our needs, and our interests in response to the other party so that we can construct something in common to move forward together when we face some common problems like, you know, climate change. Mm-hmm. It's a very creative process. Interests are not fixed. No, they're not. They're not fixed, and they because they they flow right. They they they're durational. They occur over time, right? They're not they're not like little blocks. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're constantly, you know, reconstructing our sense of our interests through interaction with other people. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's what people that are too abstract miss, right? They don't see. I mean, I love that the opening, uh, I think it's one of your more recent books, the one you sent me that I loved. And of course, towards the end, you said we have to roll up our sleeves and do work. We have a lot of work to do. And I guess you were thinking yeah, about- I think my work ethic book, yeah. <laughs> right, but no, that's a that's an interesting, and I thought about, of course, the biosphere and climate change and boy, do we, you know, that's, <laughs> this isn't like, we certainly do. That I mean, is that's the a, biggest problem that humanity has ever faced. Yeah. We have a lot of work cut out for us, right? We got to get two. Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, I guess that that maybe is where we should end. So, talk more about how you see that, or the role of work. Do you see possibilities for? I remember an anarchist friend of mine, John Clark, says that when a lot of he said a lot of disputes. He was a philo- he was a philosopher. He said sometimes it's people asking for too little. Rather than we we think it's like people asking for too much, but actually, do you think he's right about the sort of sort of? I guess I'm. I don't know if that. 
And well, all that makes sense. But something that I do believe about dealing with climate change. Yeah. Is that a vastly better world than our current world? Yep. Is in our grasp. Yes. So you know, alternative the cost of alternative energy is dropping incredibly rapidly. Mm-hmm. And to switch over would actually dramatically reduce people's uh, energy bills. Yep. And dramatically reduce other kinds of pollution besides uh, carbon. Yeah. You know, so I, I actually have um, an electric vehicle. Yeah. And I, you know, I plug it into my home outlet. It doesn't smell. There's no smelly gasoline. I never have to change the oil. It's essentially a zero maintenance vehicle. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. you got to rotate the tires. But mm-hmm. You know That's what I mean? Funny. The, these, the, the beauty of an electronic vehicle is that an electric motor is an unbelievably simple thing mm-hmm. compared to an internal combustion engine. It doesn't right. require, you know, there's not nearly as many moving parts. Mm-hmm. And so far fewer things break down. Yeah. And you don't need a catalytic converter. There's no pollution. You know, I've got solar panels on my mm-hmm. roof. So, you know, the energy is green to, to recharge it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's fantastic. Um, and, and with battery tech, advanced battery technology, the range, you know, range anxiety is also, um, you know, a solved problem. We do have to like spread rechargers all across the country. Like that's, yeah. that's the major bottleneck now, I think, for widespread adoption. But it's going to be a much better, they're also fun to drive, by the way. That's interesting. Much more responsive so, and so, great, great so acceleration. You're, so you're you living, know, why not go for it? So you're actually living in your daily life part of the solution that's ex- right that's if you think about it you're saying well i'm doing we're this. moving in that direction we we yeah. have to we do use some natural gas in our house so we are we we are looking at heat pumps yeah. and so forth so we're in we're in the process of transitioning but yeah we're we're moving in that direction and of course you know i mean my husband and i double incomes we're in a very privileged position we do yes. have to roll out you know on a global scale, modes of financing yeah, so yeah. that absolutely everyone so can participate. But it's not as if we can't invent institutions that enable a transition for everyone. Right, then that, everyone that's, will be better off. Well, that, that, we, we have to create those institutions. We do. That's why I quoted John Clark. John Clark, when he's talking about asking for too, too little, I think he's critiquing zero sum, a zero sum oh, scarcity. Absolutely. Zero sum Some's, is completely wrong. Yeah. And indeed, this is one of the lessons we can learn from proponents of markets, right? I mean, at the core of any well-functioning market is mm-hmm. that both sides gain. Yep. Now, of course, there's a lot of dysfunctional markets where only one side is gains. gaining and the other side is Losing. jammed or yep, duped right. or coerced into something which, you know, yeah. that puts them down on a escalator down to the bottom. But, yep. but well-designed markets are such that both sides gain in every transaction. And that's what mm-hmm. you want. And it's possible, but it requires careful design. Yeah. I think that's a, I hope you think that's a great place to conclude because there's a hopefulness there. And I, I really want to thank you for your, your generosity. And, you know, it's we. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Yes. I mean, even though this is an arts podcast, I, I have a very broad definition of aesthetics and certainly philosophy and, John Rawls and Martha Nussbaum are important writers, and and you mm-hmm. 
and you follow in their tradition. And so it's to me, um, most important you've been on our uh, podcast. So I thank you immensely for this. Opportunity. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you and I'm very happy to have been invited. Thank you. Thank you. And have a, have a, have a safe and good week in your future intellectual work and endeavors. Thank you. Thank you. I don't like goodbyes, so I'll see you soon, folks. Thank you. Mm-hmm.